0: Well, good evening. I invite you to take your Bibles and turn with me to John chapter 5. John chapter 5, that's not a mistake. I do want you to turn there. We are going to read from there. John chapter 5, and we're going to read verses 1 through 16. John chapter 5 verses 1 through 16. And then we're going to jump over to chapter 7, and then read the first five verses again. All right. John chapter 5, beginning with verse 1. After this, there is a feast of the Jews, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now there was in Jerusalem by the Sheep Gate a pool, an Aramaic called Bethesda, which has five roofed colonnades. In these lay a multitude of invalids, blind, lame, and paralyzed. One man was there who had been an invalid for 38 years. When Jesus saw him lying there and knew that he had already been there a long time, he said to him, it is the Sabbath, and it is not lawful for you to take up your bed. But he answered them, the man who healed me, that man said to me, take up your bed and walk. They asked him, who is the man who said this to you, take up your bed and walk? Now the man who had been healed did not know who it was, for Jesus had withdrawn, as there was a crowd in the place. Afterward, Jesus found him in the temple and said to him, See, you are well. Sin no more, that nothing worse may happen to you. The man went away and told the Jews that it was Jesus who had healed him. And this was why the Jews were persecuting Jesus, because he was doing these things on the Sabbath. Turn over to John chapter 7, and we'll read verses 1 through 5. After this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now the Jews' feast of booths was at hand. So his brothers said to him, leave here and go up to Judea, that your disciples also may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world for not even his brothers believed in him." So reads the Word of God. I want to begin by asking you two questions. Why do people oppose Jesus? Why do people oppose Jesus? The second question is this, what would you say to someone who opposes Jesus? Now maybe you're thinking to yourself, well, those are interesting questions, but why these two questions? Well, because this text answers those questions for us, first, first of all. But I think we need to realize that the Scriptures not only speak to what is sin and what is sinful, but also gives us a reason why we sin, why we do what is sinful. You see. We ought, to, we ought to be those who say, you're a sinner. And we ought to be people who say, that particular action's a sin, and that particular action's a sin. But we need to do more than that. We need to tell them why they're sinning, why they are living the way that they are living. And this text, like many others in the Scriptures, reveal to us why people oppose the Lord Jesus Christ... And we also have here an example of how we can talk to those people and have conversations, have gospel conversations with people who oppose Jesus. The world needs to know that God not only judges them for their sin, but also explains to them the condition that they live under, namely the opposition towards God. Our outline this evening is very simple, very simple. Number one, you're gonna see in verse one, opposition from Jewish leaders, and then verses two through five, you're gonna see opposition from the brothers of Jesus. So opposition from the Jews and opposition from the brothers of Jesus. That's the outline, but pay attention because the meat is in the subpoints. okay? How we're gonna unpack this opposition. So let's look at point number one, verse one, opposition from Jewish leaders. Now I'm using the word opposition even though the word isn't found in our text, but the idea is everywhere. Really what the Jewish leaders are doing, and the text does use this word, is that they are persecuting Jesus. And so what I want to do in this first point is give you three things. Three things. Number one, I want to define persecution. Number two, I want to discuss the context. And number three, I want to describe the opposition. So define, discuss, and describe. That's what we're going to see in verse one as we look at the opposition from the Jewish leaders. So define persecution. Persecution. In its most basic definition, to persecute someone means to run after them, to chase them, to pursue them because of a particular reason. In Christian terms, it means the oppression or affliction of a people because of their faith in Jesus. Because the world hates Jesus, the world in turn hates his disciples, and they persecute him. We see this in John 15, verse 20. Jesus says, remember the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Now, we need to be careful because all persecution is opposition. But not all opposition is persecution. We would do well to remember that. The brothers oppose the Lord Jesus, but they're not persecuting Him. They're not seeking to kill Him. The Jews, the leaders of the Jews, they're persecuting Him. They want to kill Jesus, and they want to kill all those who follow Him. That's the definition of persecution. Jesus doesn't want to go into Judea because the Jews, the leaders of the Jews, want to kill Him. Now let's look at the context, let's look at time and place, we read that what happens here takes place after this, that is after the events of John chapter 6, and in John chapter 6 we have amazing things that take place, Jesus feeds a multitude of people miraculously, Jesus walks on the water, Jesus gives the great bread of life discourse. Amazing things take place in chapter 6. And then we get to chapter 7, and we see that these things take place after this. But be careful. We shouldn't think that this takes place immediately after chapter 6. We're told in chapter 6 that what takes place there happens close or near to the Passover. We see that in chapter 6, verse 4. Now we're in chapter 7. What's happening in chapter 7? Well, verse 2 says that the Feast of Booths, the Feast of Tabernacles, it's, it's near. So Passover is celebrated on the 14th day of the first month, which is usually March or April. The Feast of Booths begins four days after the Day of Atonement, which usually takes place in late September or late October. So after this means that at least... Six months have gone by. That's passed, and so John is talking about chronology. He's not talking about calendar. He's not like, oh, the next day, Jesus. Oh, you know. no. it's quite a bit of time has taken place, and and this actually is good because John agrees with the synoptic gospel writers who say that most of Jesus' ministry took place in Galilee. Jesus is still in Galilee, we're told. And now I want to describe this opposition. So we've, we've, we've defined persecution. We've looked at some context, time and place. Now I want to describe this opposition, this persecution. They want to kill Jesus. Think about that for a moment. Don't, don't let those words pass you by. They want to kill the author of life. They want to kill the Son of God. They want to kill God. Who wants to kill them? The leaders of the Jews. The Jews, we read, the Judean, those who live in Judea. These are the same Jewish leaders who sent men from Judea to question John the Baptist about who he was, who then bore immediately and intensely towards the Lord Jesus Christ as the Messiah. These are the same Jewish leaders who sent Nicodemus, Israel's teacher, to question Jesus, who he was, because only one sent by God could do the things that Jesus did. These leaders have... Heard testimony from righteous men, a prophet like John the Baptist. They have heard and seen from the Messiah himself, Jesus, and yet we're told they are the ones who want to kill him. What we see here is not the beginning of opposition. This is the opposition towards the Lord Jesus Christ rising. It's getting worse. We saw in chapter 5, verse 16, the reason they want to kill Jesus is because Jesus did something on the Sabbath. What did he do? He healed a man who was an invalid for years and years and years and years. Put yourself... Uh, like a fly on the wall in that conversation in chapter 5 between the man who was healed and the leaders of the Jews. Okay, This guy, he's healed. It's a miracle. It's been years and years and years. And, and he approaches Israel's leaders, the, the shepherds of Israel. And their first, their first question is, well, you're healed. That's all. Wow, great. That's amazing. I can't believe it. Praise God. Is that what they say? No. The first thing they say is, why are you breaking the law? Why are you breaking the law? As we consider this persecution of Jesus for this miraculous work that he has done, this work that comes from God himself, I have two more questions to ask. As I read this, I ask these questions. Why are the Jewish leaders opposed to Jesus, really? And secondly, why don't the Jewish leaders see God in Jesus? What's happening here? Well, let's look at those two questions. Why are the Jewish leaders opposed to Jesus? Well, opposition towards Jesus? Happens in chapter 5, verse 16. Jesus heals the man on the Sabbath. And in the eyes of the leaders of the Jews, Jesus is a sinner. Why? Because he didn't obey the Sabbath the same way that they did. That's important. It's not that Jesus didn't obey the Sabbath. It's that he, he didn't obey the Sabbath the way they did. Later on in in this gospel and elsewhere in the synoptics, Jesus is going to really bring them to task on this. He'll say things like, you'll circumcise on the eighth day if it's the Sabbath, but you won't heal a man? You see, they oppose Jesus not because he's breaking the law, but because he's breaking their law. The Jewish leaders, in other words, are legalists. They think if they obey God's laws, they will be saved. And the way that they're going to obey God's law is by creating bigger laws to place boundaries around the commands that God has given. We can't go wrong because we're going to go one step further than God's word. Not only will we not, will we not work on the Sabbath, we'll rest, we're going to define what work is. You see, the Jews have distorted the Sabbath. By the time Jesus comes along, the Jews had what was called halakha. It's still around today in some Jewish sects. It's a compendium of Jewish law. It's their way of making sure that they would be obedient the law of God. And in this compendium called Halakha, there's a little section called the Mishnah, which at the time of Jesus, they're Jewish oral laws. And in Mishnah Shabbat chapter 7, we're not going to read it, we don't have time, they list 39 things that you can't do. And if you do one of them, you're guilty of breaking the Sabbath. Some of them are really silly. One of them is like tying your shoes, untying your shoes. The last one is this, carrying from one domain to another. You see, that's what this man who was healed in chapter 5 did. It's his mat. It's where he lived. It's his domain. It's where he spent most of his time. He's carrying it. He goes from where he was at the pool, and he's going to the temple. One domain to the domain of God, to another domain. So according to the laws of the Jews, this man is breaking the Sabbath, and Jesus is the one who made him do it. Jesus commanded him to do it. So because God commands Sabbath breakers to be killed, it's up to the Jewish leaders to do the will of God, and so we're going to kill Jesus. That's their mindset. So, here's the second question. Why don't the Jewish leaders see God in Jesus? Why do, when they look at Jesus, why is it that they don't say, we've got it wrong, Jesus has it right? Well, that's because they're legalists. The Jews used God's law to attack God. The Jews sought to persecute and kill the one John's gospel has identified as the word incarnate. Clearly, the Jews love the commandment more than they love the man who who has been healed, and they clearly love the commandment more than they love the God who gave the commandment. But none of these actually answers the question, does it? It doesn't answer the question, why did the Jews behave in such a way? The answer is found in the Bible, but the answer is found, believe it or not, in Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3, do you remember Adam and Eve? They've heard the command from God. They have a word from God. Don't what? Eat from the tree in the middle of the garden, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Don't eat from there. You can eat from any, any tree, but not that one. And then the serpent comes, and he, he tempts Adam and Eve. And how does Eve respond? Well, Eve responds in Genesis 3.3, But God said, You shall not eat from the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Did you catch that last part? Eve added something. What did she add? She added, neither shall you touch it. Why did you add that, Eve? Why isn't the word of God enough? Eve added that little bit, just like the Jews added to the Sabbath. The word of God is not enough. They do not trust God, which is scary because the leaders of the Jews are religious people. They read the Bible. They study the Bible. They know the Bible. They preach the Bible. But they've added to God's word because they do not believe God's word. It's not enough. The parts that they do like, they've molded into their their image and their likeness so that the concepts laid out in scriptures fit their worldview and don't infringe upon their autonomy, their freedom, their leadership, their rule. That is scary. Did you know... Religious people can do that, take the Word of God and twist it, and actually hurt other people, all the while saying, you know, I'm, I'm obeying God, I'm glorifying God. That's the opposition from the Jews. Next, we see opposition from Jesus' brothers. Verses 2 through five. Again here I want to show you three things in these verses. three things. First, again, I want, I want to talk about some context, right The Feast of Booths is here, the Feast of Tabernacles. Second, I want you to see that there's taunting here from Jesus' brothers. In effect, they're saying this to Jesus, Jesus, you're doing ministry wrong. And thirdly, I want you to see unbelief the reason why they are taunting the Lord Jesus Christ. The same unbelief in the hearts of the Jews that bring them to kill the author of life is the same unbelief that is used by the brothers of Jesus to taunt him. In other words, what I'm saying is this unbelief is a dangerous, dangerous thing. Maybe you think, well, it's just me. You know, my unbelief is just between me and God. No, it's not. It's between you and God and all the followers of God. And it really is a a dangerous thing. Your unbelief can lead to murder. Can Can you fathom that? I mean, if you're here tonight and you're saying to yourself, I don't believe in God. I don't believe in Jesus. I'm really just here because of my parents. Would it surprise you to know that your unbelief could lead you to murder people? Why? Because they follow Jesus. That's what we see here. We see this in the, the history of the church as well. We see people burned at the stake because... They will not baptize infants. Who's burning them at the stake? Other people who claim to be Christians. Unbelief is a very dangerous thing. Okay, so let's look at this opposition from Jesus' brothers. First, the context, verse 2, the Feast of Booths is near. What is this feast? We don't don't celebrate that in the New Covenant. What's happening here? Well, this feast, it's also called the Feast of Weeks or Tabernacles or In-Gathering. It's known today. If you look at your calendar, you'll see it is called Sukkot. Still celebrated today by certain sects of Jews. It's one of Israel's three great annual festivals. It's an agricultural festival. Only this festival doesn't celebrate grain. It celebrates things like grapes and olives. It celebrates the providence of God and the provision of God in the lives of people, of His people. In Leviticus chapter 23, verses 33 to 34, read these words. Quote, and the Lord spoke to Moses, this is the word of God, right? Saying, speak to the people of Israel, saying, on the 15th day of this seventh month, and for seven days is the Feast of Booths to the Lord. So that's what they're celebrating here, something that God commanded Moses to do. The feast celebrates God's provision of the harvest. It's commemorating Israel's wilderness wanderings, their nomadic lifestyle, the fact that when they lived in the wilderness, they had to bring their homes with them. They brought their tents with them, their booths with them. And so, during the days of Jesus, and it was, it was something that after the Babylonian captivity, after, during the days of Nehemiah and, and, and Ezra, Ezra and Nehemiah, rather, uh, that's once again something that the Jews started to practice once again. They're reminded that God provided for them while they're in the wilderness, and the way that they remember this great blessing from God is they would get into these little booths and they would would sleep out there, and it would give them a a visual reminder of what God has done. It would help really to put their feet in the sandals of their ancestors, as it were. This is what it was like for my great-great-great-great-great-great-grandfather. That's what's happening, okay? A solemn festival of God's provision. And then verses 3 to 4, the second thing we see is that they're using this event to taunt Jesus, the one who fulfills the great provisions that God has done. They're saying to Jesus, you know, we see you doing ministry, we see you doing these great things, but you know, if you did things our way, you'd actually be getting more followers. So, so Jesus, you're doing ministry wrong. So what I want to do in verses 3 to 4, I actually want to break this down into three little parts for us. First, I want you to see their claim in verse 3. Then second, I want you to see their reasoning behind their claim, verse 4. And then I want you to see their challenge. That's at the end of verse 4. So, their claim, their reasoning, and their challenge. So, their claim, verse 3, he's saying, Do some some great works for your disciples in Judea so they can see you there. Now, we have to remember something happens in chapter 6. Chapter 6, verse 66, Jesus begins to lose. Disciples, quote-unquote. They say things like, the words that Jesus says, they're difficult. They're hard sayings. And I'm not going to follow him anymore. So they leave. They depart. They abandon Jesus. So it's been months that Jesus has been losing members, losing disciples. It's clear that the brothers of Jesus are challenging the way Jesus is performing in his ministry. The way that they're speaking to Jesus is respectful. It's, it's the same kind of words you would see and find when people are speaking to a superior. So why do I say that they're, they're taunting Jesus? Well, it's because they follow up this respectful language by speaking of Jesus' disciples and his works. In chapter 6, his disciples want him to do more miraculous works, just like Moses. Moses fed us every day, Jesus, so you feed us every day. And Jesus says, you don't get what it's pointing to. By the way, Moses didn't feed you, God fed you, but I am the bread from heaven. God's blessing and, and sign is upon me. Eat my flesh and drink my blood and you'll live forever. And the people are saying, okay, stop. Just, just feed me. Just do miracles, please. Because that's what we need. So his disciples are really saying, you should have listened to the people who left. You should have listened to the, should have listened to the grumblers. Just, just give them what they want, Jesus, and they wouldn't have left. Now, Listen. We all do something like that at some point, don't we? Something doesn't go your way. You've been praying for it. You you want something to happen, and it it doesn't happen, and, and God gives you a resounding no, and perhaps you grumble a little bit. You're upset with the Lord. Well, that's what the people are doing in chapter 6, they're they're, they're grumbling. They're not grumbling against Moses like the people in the wilderness, they're grumbling against Jesus, the one who's greater than Moses. And now his brothers, they're not grumbling, they're taunting him. They're speaking, the, the words they speak are polite, but they're just daggers. You ever had that conversation with somebody? You're like, I see you're smiling, but but why do I hurt right now? Right? That's what's happening with Jesus and his brothers. They're saying, Jesus, give the people what they want. Again, we don't say it out loud, but with our grumblings, we admit that at least a part of us don't believe that what God is doing in his sovereign will is what is best, And so we politely pray that God would do something else, something that we desire. So we need to be careful as we look at these brothers of Jesus that we don't look down on them and say, you guys, man alive. When will you learn? When will I learn? That's the question. That's their claim, right? Jesus Go do your works in front of the people. Their reasoning, in verse 4, they say, No one who wants to be a public figure acts in secret, Jesus' brothers tell him. Now, the word for public figure simply means someone who speaks with confidence. It's quite possible that Jesus' brothers see the humility of Jesus and mistake it for a lack of confidence. And this should blow us away because they, like the leaders of the Jews, know the miraculous signs of Jesus. They remember that, the, that their brother Jesus turned water into wine in chapter 2. They were there at the wedding. The brothers know that Jesus claims to be the Messiah. They know that Jesus claims to be the fulfillment of the temple, but they don't get it because they judge Jesus with natural eyes. In fact, Jesus is going to condemn the Jewish leaders in John chapter 7 verse 24 for the same kind of thing. There we read, "Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment," Jesus says. Do you judge Jesus the same way? With the eyes of natural man? Well their challenge. What's their challenge? Well, they say, show yourself to the world, Jesus. And maybe you think, well that's actually a pretty good challenge. Show yourself to the world, Jesus. But that's a terrible misunderstanding. If you if you've read John chapter 1 through 6, you see that this is an absolute wrong-headed idea. If you remember the world in John's gospel is not able to accept Jesus. John 1:10 He was in the world and the world was made through him yet the world did not know him. John 3, 19 to 20. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people love the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his works should be exposed. Hey, Jesus, here's an idea. Go and show yourself to the world. The brothers really don't understand the things that they're speaking about. And yet in another sense as this gospel progresses we will see that it is in jerusalem where jesus in fact does reveal himself in the most dramatic of ways how on the cross john 1 29 the next day he saw jesus coming toward him and he said behold The Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Jesus is going to go to the cross at the end of John as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Why why don't they get it? They've grown up with Jesus, they've seen his miracles. Well, the reason is given here. Verse 5, unbelief. Once again, they do not believe. That is not to say that they didn't believe that Jesus could perform miracles. They did. They've seen it. The issue is not intelligence. The issue is not knowledge. The issue is whether or not you believe Jesus on his terms. The brothers are lumped with all the other disciples who do not believe Jesus and so turn their backs on him. In the NIV, the word even is used, which literally is a conjunction followed by a negation. And not even his brothers believed. Who's the other? If it's and the brothers, who who else? The Jews who want to kill him. Who else? The disciples who left him in John chapter 6. What we're seeing here is that you need something greater than familial bonds to save you. Do you know, the Apostle Paul, as he writes Ephesians, he says, you know, you've been taken out of your family and you've been taken out of your nation and you're now a new family and a new nation. Why? Because your family is unable to save. Here we have the brothers of Jesus who know him, who've seen his works, who've heard his words, and they don't get it. Jesus, show yourself to the world, that same world who cannot trust you because they love their sin rather than the light. John, the author of this gospel, The evangelist, he's joining the brothers with every other person who does not believe and thus opposes Jesus. So this unbelief and this opposition, it can can take many different... um, It can look like different things, right? So sometimes people want to kill Jesus. Other times people want to taunt him. At another time, Jesus' brothers just want to put him in an insane asylum. Mark chapter 3, verse 21, we read, And and when his family heard what he was saying, they went out to seize him, for they were saying, He is out of his mind. So at some point, they stopped thinking he was crazy and moved on to the fact that he just wasn't doing a very good job as Messiah. Because they don't really believe he's the Messiah. well, what should we say about all this? How do we conclude? Well, let me say two things as we close our time this evening. Two things. Number one, remember at the beginning of the sermon I asked two questions. The first we've answered, people oppose Jesus because they do not believe Him. The second question, what would you say to those who oppose Jesus? First, you need to explain to them why they sin. In other words, you need to tell them your issue is that you do not believe God. And I know the temptation is, it has to be more than that, right? I mean, it has to be some kind of deep psychological Problem or some some particular sin that really just catches them up. Well, Well, let me say there is a particular sin. It's the sin of unbelief. You need to tell people God has spoken in His Word and in His Son, and you don't believe it. You don't believe Him. You don't trust Him. That's the first thing you need to say. Don't just tell them that they're sinners them why they're sinners. Second, you need to explain to them that there is hope. There's hope for them. There's hope for them. These same disciples who have tried to commit Jesus to an insane asylum, these same disciples who taunt Jesus, they are the ones who, after the Lord Jesus dies and rises again, become committed disciples of the Lord Jesus. They did not trust Jesus during His life, but they did come to know Him and believe in Him as the Messiah. Acts chapter one, verse 14, all these, that is the disciples, with one accord, were, devoted them, were devoting themselves to prayer together with the women, and Mary, the mother of Jesus and his brothers. That means there's hope hope for those whom you know, those here today who do not believe. But take this hope seriously because you don't know when your life is going to end. You don't know when you will be called before God. There's a warning in the book of Hebrews that speaks to the need to make sure your relationship with God is settled now. In Hebrews chapter 3, verses 12 to 13, we read, Take care, brothers, lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin, the deceitfulness of unbelief. Secondly, not only is there hope for unbelievers, but there is a warning for legalists as well here, isn't there? The scriptures call us to walk by faith and not by works. How you live in this world screams volumes about who you trust. Where you find your rest. If if you find that you are constantly burdened, constantly working for God's approval, constantly blind to the things that God is doing in your life and in the lives of the people around you, you are probably a legalist. And so turn to Jesus Christ. Put your confidence in His work on the cross. That is what it means to walk by faith and not by sight. The Jewish leaders walked by works and not by faith. Why? Because of their unbelief. And the result was that they wanted to kill Jesus. You can't kill Jesus. He has an indestructible life. That's been tried. He rose again on the third day. So your only alternative, Mr. Legalist and Mrs. Legalist, is to kill those who follow Jesus. It's all because of unbelief in God's Word. Take the warning of legalism and the hope for unbelievers like Jesus' brother seriously and repent of your sin. Trust in Jesus, His work on the cross for the forgiveness of your sin, the sin of unbelief included, and walk in this world by faith and not by sight. Trust. The Word of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would bless us through this preaching of your Word. And we ask, our Father, that we would have a wonderful sense of your presence with us this evening as we consider the work and ministry of the Lord Jesus Christ in all of its perfection, in all of its glory, in all of its power. Our Father, we thank you that there is indeed, even this day, hope for sinners. We thank you that there's even warnings for legalists, because there's still time to repent. Father, bless us, we pray, with the, with the gospel blessings that are ours in Jesus Christ. And I pray, Father, if there's anybody here tonight who does not believe, that you would soften their hard hearts, that you would open the eyes of their unbelieving hearts, And draw them to Jesus Christ. Woo them to the Savior who shed his blood for sinners. And give them the gift of faith, we pray. O Lord, we ask for our eternal good and for the glory of Jesus Christ. Amen.